Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Great to be with you tonight. Wonderful to be invited back to Albuquerque. And as I prayed and thought about what I should talk about this evening, I thought, you know, I want to talk about what Jesus said about you. Because he talked about you. I mean, he was talking, yeah, to a group of people 2,000 years ago, but I think by extension, he was also talking to all of us today. And this is what he said in Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 13. He said, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds And glorify your Father in heaven. So Jesus was saying to that group of people 2,000 years ago, and he was saying to us today, I want you to be like salt. I want you to be like salt that causes people to thirst for the kingdom of God. I want you to live like light that shines his compassion and his grace and his truth into dark areas of despair. And the question I want to raise is, how do we do that in the 21st century? What does that look like today? I just co-authored a book on this topic, and we call the book The Unexpected Adventure. And we named it that for a very specific reason, because I really believe if we endeavor to live like salt and to live like light in the 21st century, if three things are true of us, if we're motivated to engage with people about Jesus, if we make ourselves available to do that, if we're prayerful about that, then you never know how God is going to ambush you with an opportunity to get into a spiritual conversation with someone that could redirect their entire eternity. He'll surprise you in ways that you never would have anticipated. I saw this a number of years ago. I was a pretty new Christian. I was still a newspaper editor in Chicago. And one day I was packing up my things to go home, and I felt the Holy Spirit was just nudging me very distinctly. I felt like I needed to go into the business office of the newspaper and to invite my atheist friend to come to Easter services at my church because we were going to have Easter coming up. So I thought, because it felt like God was just kicking me in the pants to go do this, I thought something wonderful is going to happen. He's probably going to repent right there. It's going to be great. So I walk with great confidence over to the business office, you know, and I look around as I entered the room, and all I see is my friend behind his desk. And I thought, perfect. I said, hey, how you doing? He said, I'm doing good. I said, hey, you know, Easter's coming up. He said, come on, Lee, I'm an atheist. I don't believe that stuff. I said, I know you're an atheist, but, you know, this is when we celebrate Jesus' return from the dead. It's resurrection. He said, oh, he wasn't resurrected. I said, well, actually, there's very good historical evidence that he was resurrected. I tried to talk a little bit about that, but he wasn't interested. He would shut me down, whatever I would say. Finally, I said, well, well, do you ever think about God? He said, no. I said, do you have any questions about God? He said, no. I said, look, why don't you come to the church I go to this Easter? I think you'll love the music. I think you'd really enjoy it. He says, I don't want to go to your stupid church. Whatever I would say, just shut me down. Finally, I started to get embarrassed. I said, well, you know, um, okay, well, you know where my office is. So if you have any questions or anything, you know where to find me. And, And I walked down. I thought, what was that all about? 
Did I get my wires crossed or something? Why was God kicking me in the butt to go do this and yet to have that kind of response? And you know what? This bothered me for years. I thought maybe, you know, maybe I was just a link in a long chain that hopefully will eventually lead them to Christ. But you know what? To this day, I believe he's still an atheist. But let me tell you the rest of the story. A few years after that, I was a pastor by then at a church in Chicago area. And a guy came up to me after one of the services who I'd never met. And he says, can I shake your hand and thank you for the spiritual influence you've had on my life? I said, well, that's very nice, but who are you? He said, let me tell you my story. He said, a few years ago, I lost my job. And I didn't have any savings in the bank. I thought I was going to lose my house, my car, everything, go bankrupt. I didn't know what to do. I needed work. So I called a friend of mine who runs a newspaper. And I said, do you have any odd jobs I could do to earn a paycheck? He said, well, do you know how to tile floors? And the guy said to me, well, you know, I tile my bathroom. So I, I said to him, yeah, I could tile floors. He said, great, we need some tiling repaired and some tiling installed. If you can do that, we can pay you some money. So he said, great. So he said, one day, not long before Easter, I was in the business office of the newspaper, but I was on my hands and knees behind a desk on the floor working on some tile, and you walked in the room, and I don't even think you saw me there. But you started talking to this guy about Jesus. And you started talking about the resurrection. And you started inviting him to church. And he said, this guy was shutting you down. But I'm on my hands and knees and my heart's beating fast. And I'm thinking, I need God. I need, I need to go to church. He said, as soon as you left, I picked up the phone. I called my wife. I said, we're going to church this Easter. She said, what? I said, no, we are. He said, we came to your church that Easter. I came to faith. My wife came to faith. And our teenage son came to faith. I just wanted to thank you. And I thought, you know, this is a new form of evangelism, ricochet evangelism. You know, you share your faith, it bounces off a hard heart. You don't know where it's going to go. Friends, this is the unexpected adventure of the Christian life. When you live on the evangelistic edge, you make yourself available to be salt and light in your world. This, this is when your whole Christian experience just gets elevated. It's when your worship becomes that more that much more heartfelt because you're worshiping the God of the second chance who loves your spiritually confused neighbor even more than you do. It's when your Bible study takes on a whole new significance because you're not just looking for abstract theological truths. You're looking for something that can help you reach your friend. It's when your prayer life becomes that much more fervent. Because you're praying, God, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. I feel so inadequate. I need your help. It's when our dependence on God is at its greatest. Because we know that apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, there's nothing you and I could do to lead anybody to faith. This is where the action is, friends. This is where the Christian life really gets exciting. And so the question I want to say, ask is, how can we do this? How can we live on this evangelistic edge and be salt and light in our world today? And as I thought about that, I thought, well, what if Jesus literally lived in my house? What would he do? How would he reach out to the neighbors and so? And I thought, you know, as I studied the life of Jesus and prayed and thought about this, I thought, man, there's so much we could learn from the Master in how He would be salt and light to others. And so I just want to talk about a few things tonight that I think we could learn from Jesus about reaching out in our worlds. I think the first thing I would learn from Jesus is this. Before He talked to His neighbor about their Heavenly Father, He would talk to His Heavenly Father about His neighbor. Right? He'd pray. Wouldn't he? Of course he would. Before Jesus embarked on anything of significance, 
he would bring it to the Father in prayer. In fact, have you ever thought about the fact that Jesus' prayers for spiritually lost people continued right up until his final breaths on the cross? Think about that. The British pastor John Stott said, you know, you notice something. One of the nuances as you read the New Testament and the original Greek in which it's written, what you notice as you read the story about the crucifixion is that the imperfect tense of the Greek suggests that Jesus didn't just pray it once, but he kept repeating this prayer over and over again, all through the torture of the crucifixion, while the nails were being driven through his hands, while the nails were being driven through his feet. He kept praying, Father, forgive them, Father, forgive them, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. Jesus' prayers for people so spiritually depraved they were torturing to death the Son of God continued right up until his final breaths on the cross. And I believe if Jesus lived in my house, the first thing I would notice, he would be praying specifically and consistently and fervently for all the neighbors that don't know God. And the question is, are we? Are we praying that way? I know we can't by our prayers force anybody to become a Christian. I understand that. But I also believe what James said when he said the prayers of righteous people make a difference. I believe it does make a difference. When we pray that God would open someone's eyes to the truth of Scripture, to their need for a Savior, that we pray for ourselves, that God would use us as salt and light in their life, I believe these are prayers that are right within the, the will of God. And I've seen amazing things that God has done. I remember one day we were doing a baptism service at our church in Chicago. And um, we had people going to come up. We would be baptized. We explained the gospel and why, what baptism is all about. And we told people, when you come up, um, you know, if you're going to be baptized, put a flower on so we know you're candidates for baptism. But if you want to bring someone up to be a witness, you know, maybe a spouse or someone who led you to the Lord, great, bring them up. So... We started the service. We baptized a whole bunch of people that day. And a woman comes up to me to be baptized. She has a flower on. She's about 60 years old. And she's got a man with her. He doesn't have a flower on. But he's a tough-looking bird. He's about 65 years old, wiry, construction worker type. Just I don't even think he used a hammer, just a fist to nail stuff. You know what I mean? Just a tough-looking bird. So they come up. And I say to her, you're here to be baptized. She said, yes, I am. I said, that's fantastic. I said, have you received Jesus Christ as your forgiver and your leader? She said, oh, yes, I have. I said, that's great. And I was just about to baptize her. And I didn't usually do this, but I turned to the man. And I said, are you her husband? He said, well, yes, I am. I said, have you given your life to Jesus Christ? And he looked at me. He sort of scowled at me. And honestly, I didn't know what was going to happen. I thought it was going to hit me or something. I mean, he just his face kind of screwed up. And he burst into tears weeping and sobbing in front of thousands of people. No, I haven't, but I want to right now. Wait a minute, time out. Can we do this? Ah, great. So this guy in front of thousands of people repents of his sin, receives Jesus Christ as his forgiver, and I baptize him and his wife together. So after the service, I'm walking out off the platform, and another woman I didn't know comes running up to me, throws her arms around me. She's weeping and sobbing, and all she can say is, nine years, nine years, nine years. I said, who are you? What are you talking about, nine years? She said, that's my brother who you just led to the Lord and baptized. I have been praying for that man for nine long years. And for nine years, I've seen not one glimmer of interest in spiritual matters. But look what God did today. And you know what my very first thought was? There is a woman who was glad she didn't stop praying in year eight. 
Friends, who have you stopped praying for? Who is it you used to lift up to God? You used to bring to the throne of grace and and you used to pray fervently and consistently and specifically for this person. But over time, you just sort of gave up hope. I think sometimes we sort of make the decision for the person. We sort of conclude this person is never going to bend their knee to Jesus Christ. And we just stop praying for them. And I think this woman would say, don't give up. Don't give up. Can you bring somebody into your mind? Someone you've forgotten to pray for for a long time? What if we all committed right now to say, I'm going to pray consistently and specifically and fervently. And one of the things I'm going to pray is, God, let me be salt and light in this person's life. Open up opportunities for me to get into a spiritual encounter with this person. I know they seem so distant from you, God, but you are the God of the second chance. Who knows? But I tell you, if Jesus lived in my house, first thing I'd notice, specifically, consistently, fervently, He'd be praying for lost neighbors. Second thing, I think, if Jesus physically lived in my house is that he would assure the neighbors that his door would always be open for questions. You got a doubt? You got an objection? You got an issue? Come on down. Bring the Starbucks. Let's sit down. Let's talk about this stuff. It's true, isn't it? I can't think of any instant in the New Testament where Jesus slam-dunked anybody that came to him with a sincere question, right? I was talking about this to a a good friend of mine, Gary Habermas, who's a great scholar and written many books on the issue of doubt. And And Gary and I were talking, Gary said, yeah, he said, Lee, my favorite example of that is John the Baptist. He said, think about this. Of all the people, John the Baptist should have been absolutely convinced of Jesus' identity as being the Son of God. John the Baptist once pointed to Jesus and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John baptized Jesus and saw the heavens open up and heard the voice of the Father saying, This is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. John the Baptist once pointed to Jesus and said, I have seen and I testify this is the Son of God. But then what happens? He gets arrested. He is thrown into prison. Question. What happens when tough times come? Doubts begin to creep in, don't they? They do for all of us. So John's sitting in prison. Now he's got all these doubts. He's not sure anymore. So he gets a couple friends together. He says, look, track Jesus down. and Just ask him point blank to clear all this up. Are you the one we've been waiting for? Or are we to wait for somebody else? So John's friends track Jesus down and say, hey, Jesus. And he said, hey, yeah, well, well you know John. Well, you know, he got busted. And he's in prison. He is freaking. He's not sure who you are anymore. He's got doubts. He's got questions. So, Jesus, would you just tell us point blank, are you the one we've been waiting for or are we to wait for somebody else? Now, here's the question. How does Jesus react? Does he get mad at John? Does he get angry that John had the temerity to ask a question, to express a doubt? No. Jesus said to those followers of John, he said in Luke 7, verse 22, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. So in other words, go back to John and tell him about the evidence that you have seen with your own eyes that convinces you of my identity of being the Son of God. So here's the deal. They go back and they tell John that, but... 
how do, does this change Jesus' opinion about John? Does this now disqualify John from any role in the kingdom of God because he dared to ask a question? No. It's after this incident that Jesus gets up in front of a crowd and says, I tell you, among those born of women, there's no one greater than John. John the doubter. John the guy with questions. Friends, can I tell you something? It's okay to have questions. It's even okay to have some doubts as long as you do what John did. You pursue answers to satisfy your heart and soul. So I think that's important for us to understand, but I think equally important is to understand that we need to help bring answers to our friends. Friends who are confused, friends who have spiritual sticking points, questions that are holding them up in their spiritual journey. Because we're all told as followers of Jesus in 1 Peter 3.15, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have and to do it gently and respectfully. I mean, that's a command to all of us as followers of Jesus Christ. Because when we, when we don't do that, we become another reason not to believe. We can become another impediment in somebody's journey. One of the steps that I took into atheism was as a youngster, I began to ask tough questions about God. How can there be a loving God if there's so much pain in the world? How can a loving God send people to hell? And the Christians in my life looked at me and basically said, shut up. You're not supposed to be asking questions like that. You're not supposed to be having doubts like that. And so what did I conclude? I concluded, well, the reason they don't want to talk about this, they don't have good answers. And it was another step for me toward atheism. Friends, we need to help our friends find answers to their tough questions. Because the good news is we have answers to the toughest questions of life and faith. The good news is we have, we have truth on our side. I saw this so powerfully demonstrated a few years ago. One of, one of my friends from my atheist days was one of the most prominent atheists in the country. He was the national spokesman for American Atheists Incorporated. There's a job for you. So... So we stayed friends, and, and, and after I became a Christian, I would share Christ with him, and, and we'd get into little debates. And, and finally one day he said to me, oh, Strobel, he said, you know what? You Christians are all alike. I said, what do you mean? He said, oh, you'll give the case for Christ. You'll give the evidence for God, but you won't then give the evidence against God and just let people make up their own minds. I said, oh, yeah? I said, I'll tell you what. You go get the smartest the most articulate atheist on planet Earth, and I will fly him here to this church, and I will allow him to stand on our platform and proclaim the case for atheism. But I'm going to get a Christian. And that Christian is going to present the evidence for Christianity, and then he's going to debate your atheist. And we'll just let people make up their own minds. He said, you wouldn't do that. I said, oh, yeah? We shook hands on it. My very next thought, I should ask the elders about this before I did this. Too late. And this ball was rolling. I mean, this took on a life of its own. The Chicago Tribune did four advanced articles on this. And talk radio, talk television was chattering about this. Why? Because the church said, we're not afraid to confront these tough questions. We're not afraid to debate these topics. I started to get phone calls from radio stations around the country. Can we broadcast this debate live? Sure. Pretty soon we had 117 radio stations coast to coast going to broadcast this live. One radio network sent commentators like it was a prize fight or something. It was a jab by the Christian, I think the atheist on the ropes. I mean, it was unbelievable. The night of the debate came, traffic was gridlocked within two miles of our church. 
We opened the doors. People ran down the aisle to get get a seat. When's the last time you saw people run into a church? We had 7,779 people live in our auditorium and hooked up by video overflow on various points in our campus. We're about to go on national radio with this debate, and I'm going to moderate it. I'm backstage. I'm kind of nervous, and I'm kind of pacing, and and one of our elders comes up to me and says, So, Lee, we are going to win this, aren't we? (laughs) So the debate starts, and the guy that we chose to represent Christianity is a guy who, in my opinion, is the greatest defender of the Christian faith in the world today, uh, Dr. William Lane Craig, if you know that name, two earned PhDs, wonderful man of God. He gets up. He he, he spends the first 20 minutes presenting the evidence for the existence of God and the truth of Christianity. It was so powerful, so persuasive. I just wanted to cheer, but... I was the moderator. I had to be neutral. So thank you, Dr. Craig. And now the atheist, Professor Zindler. Good luck, buddy. So this guy, (laughs) they chose their guy. I said, get your best guy. We're not going to get accused of stacking the deck. You go get your best guy. So they they, they said their best guy. He stands behind the podium. He's about to open his mouth. But we didn't tell him one thing. Not that he would have cared. But we didn't tell him that right where he was standing... Underneath the stage was a room, and that room was filled for the entire two and a half hours of the debate with Christians who were praying that the case for Christ would go out with all its convicting power, and the case for atheism would be recognized for the bankrupt philosophy that it is. And if you've seen the video of that debate, which is online, you can see it. I mean, you know God answered that prayer. We have people vote. What's your spiritual condition as you come in? Who won the debate? What's your spiritual condition as you leave? Initially, we took just the ballots of the people who came in as atheists, as skeptics, as doubters, as agnostics, just the non-believers. We took just those ballots, and having heard the case for Christ and the case for atheism, over 83% said the case for Christ was by far the most compelling, and 47 people walked in as confirmed atheists, heard both sides, and walked out as followers of Jesus Christ. And you know what else? Not one person became an atheist. (laughs) Friends, we have an unfair advantage in the marketplace of ideas. We have truth on our side. Now, what, what am I saying? Am I saying we ought to then go out and debate everybody? No, I'm not saying that. I think debates have their place. But for you and me, I think the key word isn't debate. It's dialogue. It's conversations. It's relationships. It's sitting down over a cup of coffee and it's talking about what are the issues that are holding you up in your spiritual journey? What are the objections that are... And you know what? Sometimes they're going to raise something, an issue and a question. You're not going to know what the answer is. You know what the best thing you can do is? Just say, I don't know. I'm not the Bible answer man. I don't don't have an answer. But can I help you find one? And then help your friend. You know, it, it gives you an excuse to get together and talk about it some more. And you can, there are plenty of books. I've written books. Lots of people have written books about this kind of stuff. My website, leestrobel.com, has hundreds of free video clips. You can go with your friend, type in your tough question, and boom, up come these free videos of experts and scholars talking about the evidence for the Christian faith. I mean, there's a resource you can use. It doesn't cost you anything. But, you know, I think if Jesus lived in my house, the door would be open. I'm not going to shame you for having a question. I'm going to dialogue. I'm going to get to know you. I'm going to, I'm going to help you find an answer to satisfy your heart and mind. 
Third thing I think if Jesus physically lived in my house is that he wouldn't just share his faith, but he would show his faith. Would just share it, he'd show it. In other words, talk is cheap. Jesus didn't just say that he loved the world. He showed his love by being a servant. He served the blind by restoring their sight. He served the lepers by restoring their health. He even served the people at the wedding at Cana by turning water into wine. And then in the greatest act of servanthood in the history of the world, he gave his life as a ransom for humankind. Friends, when we serve other people in a sacrificial way, the way that Jesus modeled, it opens up hearts that otherwise would be impervious to the gospel. Because we're not just saying that Jesus loves them. We're bringing his love to them in a tangible way. Remember I read Matthew five sixteen. Let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. The word in the Greek, good, when it says good deeds, doesn't just mean good deeds as opposed to bad deeds. There's another connotation to it. And it means do deeds that are attractive and winsome. So what Jesus is saying, I want you to serve other people in an attractive, in a winsome way that causes their eyes to drift heavenward toward your heavenly Father who motivates you against the grain of this me-first culture to serve other people sacrificially. I think if Jesus lived in my house, one of the things I'd notice real quickly is that he would be scanning the neighborhood with his compassion radar. Beep, beep, just looking. How to serve. How to serve. How to bring the love of God in a tangible way to someone else. And friends, we can do this. We can scan our neighborhoods. We can scan our workplaces. We can scan our schools. We can look, our families even, and, and look for those ways we can bring compassion of Jesus Christ in a tangible way to someone. There may be a single mom who lives down the block from you, and she's working two jobs, and she's barely keeping her head above water, and she's got two little kids. And if you and your, your wife said, you know, we'd be willing to babysit your kids, you know, every Friday night for a couple months just to give you some time to, 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 to get your life together, what a blessing that would be. Um, maybe, maybe there's an elderly widow on your block. She just needs someone to take her to the grocery store once a week. Maybe there's someone down the block and you're real handy with fixing stuff and, and they need stuff, little things fixed in their house. They have no idea how to do it, but you could serve them that way. There's a million ways we can serve other people. And doing so, we can bring them the gospel. One, one of the most powerful gospel tools I ever had was my snowblower uh, when I lived in Chicago. My wife and I bought a snowblower, and and we would go out. It would snow overnight, and we would go out with a snowblower at the crack of dawn, and we would clear the driveways and the sidewalks of the single moms and the widows that lived in our neighborhood. And they were so appreciative, saying, oh, can we pay you? I said, no, hey, we're your neighbors. We live right down the block. I want you to know we're there for you. And if I can just say it, Jesus is there for you too. We had more spiritual conversations that way. Uh, there's, I can't do that now. I live in California. But there are other ways we can, we can look for those opportunities. I think Jesus would do it, and it's something we could learn from him. Finally, above all else, I believe if Jesus physically lived in my house, he would be authentic in the way in which he related to his neighbors. 
In other words, Jesus wouldn't just communicate the gospel. He would live it out in front of them. He would embody it. There would be a consistency between his character and his creed, between his beliefs and his behavior. And the question is, what about us? What about us? Because I can guarantee you something. If your neighbors know that you go to church, then you better bet your bottom dollar that they are scanning your life with a different kind of radar. What's it called? The hypocrisy radar. Beep. You know they are. Beep, beep. beep. They're, they're watching you. What are they looking for? Beep, beep. False piety. Beep, beep. What are they looking for? Beep. Kind of a, a holier-than-thou attitude. Beep, beep. You know, what are they looking they're, they're looking for, you know, do you smile on a phony Christian happy face and pretend like everything's always all right when you know it isn't? What are they seeing as they scan your life? There was a woman by the name of Maggie. And Maggie was poisoned against God and the church because her hypocrisy radar picked up some awful things as she was growing up. She was abused by people who claimed to be Christians. And it turned her so against God and the church. In fact, let me just read you what she wrote to me in a letter. She said, The Christianity I grew up with was so confusing to me even as a child. People would say one thing, but they did another. They appeared very spiritual in public, but in private they were abusive. What they said and what they did never fit. There was such a a discrepancy. So listen, I came to hate Christianity and did not want to be associated with the church. Friends, that is the power of inauthentic Christians to repel people from God. You know, Jesus said, I want you to be salt and light. He meant that in a positive way. But the truth is, some Christians are like salt in a wound. Some Christians are like light that glares and forces people to turn their heads away. That's not what Jesus was talking about. But guess what happened to Maggie? (laughs) She read in the Chicago Tribune about a debate that was going to happen between a Christian and an atheist. (laughs) And she came to our debate. And the Christian won the debate. Clearly. And so that threw her into a tailspin. So she started writing me these long letters. Dear Lee, here are my first 50 questions and objections to God. Boom, 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 boom. And I'm thinking, okay. So I would write her back. And finally I called up and said, Maggie, this is a very inefficient way to get answers to your questions. I said, there's a better way. We have at our church little groups of people like you on a spiritual journey investigating Christianity, skeptics and people with questions. We get a half a dozen of them and, and, and a Christian couple that leads the group. And you can join the group and make some friends and get your questions answered over time. Would you like to do that? She said, yeah, great. So she joined one of these groups. Now, I want to read you what she wrote about the two Christians, the Christian couple that led that group. And I want to read it to you because, you know, Jesus said, I want you to be salt and light. And sometimes we wonder, what do these people want from us? What what are people looking for? And I think Maggie explains it so well. Listen to what she was looking for from the Christians who led her group. She said, so when I came to church into my little group, I needed, here's the first thing she needed. I needed gentleness. I needed to be able to ask any question. I needed to have my questions taken seriously. I needed to be treated with respect and validated. But most of all, get this, most of all, I needed to see people whose actions match what they say. I'm not looking for perfect, but 
I am looking for real. Integrity is the word that comes to mind. I need to hear real people talk about real life, and I need to know if God is or can be a part of real life. Does he care about the wounds I have? Does he care that I need a place to live? Can I ever be a whole and a healthy person? Well, I've asked questions like these of the two Christians who lead my little group and have not been laughed at or ignored or invalidated. I've not been pushed or pressured in any way. In fact, she said, I don't understand the caring I receive from the Christians who lead my group. I don't understand it. They don't seem afraid of questions. They don't say things like, just have to have faith. We just need to pray more. They don't seem to be afraid to tell who they really are. They just seemed genuine. And then Maggie sent me a copy of a poem that she wrote for the two Christians who led her little group. I'll tell you what, the first time I read this poem, I said, no, no, no. This is a poem that every Christian on planet Earth needs to hear. Why? Because this is the heart's cry of the very people who God has told us, I want you to reach out to and be salt and light to. Listen to her heart's cry. Imagine this is a 24-year-old nurse named Maggie, and she's looking you as a follower of Jesus Christ, looking you in the eye and saying these words. Do you know? Do you understand that you represent Jesus to me? Do you know? Do you understand that when you treat me, with gentleness it raises the question in my mind well maybe he is gentle too maybe he isn't someone who laughs when i get hurt do you know do you understand that when you listen to my questions and you don't laugh that i think well what if jesus is interested in me too do you know do you understand that When I hear you talk honestly about arguments and conflicts and scars from your past, then I think, well, maybe I am just a regular person instead of a bad, no-good little girl who deserves abuse. If you care, then I think maybe he cares. And then there's this flame of hope that burns inside of me, and for a while I'm afraid to breathe because it might go out. Do you know? Do you understand that your words are His words? That your face is His face to someone like me? Please, be who you say you are. Please, God, don't let this be another trick. Please, let it be real this time. Please. Do you know? Do you understand? That you represent Jesus to me. Friends, I read that for the first time. I just cried. Because what flooded into my mind were all the times that I was too busy doing the work of professional clergy to be like Jesus to people who lived a five-iron shot from my house. And I said, this has got to stop right now. 
And I called Maggie up. I said, Maggie, thank you for that poem. It just, it just really convicted me. And I said, Maggie, I'm speaking this weekend at the church. I want everyone to hear this poem. Could I get your permission to read it to the congregation? And Maggie said, oh, Lee, haven't you heard? And my heart sunk. I thought, oh, no. What inauthentic Christian has she encountered now that's just repelled her again from God? I said, no, Maggie, I haven't heard. What, what, tell me what happened. What happened? She said, no, Lee, it's a good thing. I said, what? She said, Lee, on Tuesday night, I gave my life to Jesus Christ. I said, Maggie, that's fantastic. I, I, honestly, I almost fell over. I said, this, this is tremendous. I said, for someone as far from God as you were to come to faith, I mean, that's tremendous. But Maggie, I have to know something. you got to explain something to me. She said, what? I said, I need to know. What brought you across the line of faith? I just need to know. I mean, what five facts did you learn that convinced you that Jesus really did return from the dead? She said, it wasn't like that for me. I said, yeah, yeah, fine. I said, what ten facts did you learn? That convinced you that the Bible really is the Word of God. Because that was sort of how I came to faith. And she said, it wasn't like that with me. I said, then what? What was it? Now she was kind of getting embarrassed. She said, well, kind of like she shrugged over the phone. She said, well, Lee, I, I just met a whole bunch of people at church who were like Jesus to me. I thought, what a lesson. What a lesson for someone like me who likes to pin somebody up against the wall. Give you ten reasons for the resurrection. Don't like those ten, I'll give you ten more. (laughs) You know what the best news of all is? We don't have to be theologians. We don't have to have a doctorate in theology to do this. We don't have to pretend we're smarter than we are. We don't have to pretend we're more pious than we are. We don't have to pretend we're the Bible answer man. We can just be ourselves sinners saved by grace friends we can do this we can be salt and like as light as jesus intended we can pray for people we can pray specifically and fervently and consistently we can do that we can we can help people who have tough questions pursue answers to satisfy their heart and mind we can find ways with our compassion radar to, 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 to serve people in practical ways, to bring the love of Christ in a tangible way into people's lives. And the easiest thing of all is we can just be ourselves. And God, when we do these things, i got to tell you something, God is going to take us on a series of unexpected adventures that will be the joy of our lives. So let's pray. Father, I do pray that you would use us as salt and light to reach our neighbors, our friends, our colleagues, people we go to school with, whatever our situation, even people in our own families that are distant from you. We do pray that you would, by your Spirit, open up opportunities for us to get into spiritual conversations with others and then guide us and lead us. Give us the words. Give us the heart. Help us just to be ourselves and to tell others the difference that you have made in our lives. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks, everyone. God bless you. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. 
If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.